Hello everyone, Chris Martinson here, founder of Peak Prosperity, and today we're going to be going into chapter two of the Crash Course. Now, the Crash Course represents probably one of the best pieces of work I've done in my life. You maybe have seen my COVID coverage, you may have been following me on economics for a while, but the Crash Course really lays down the large framework that I think helps, well, it helps me, but it will help you to understand what's going on in the world right now. In case you haven't noticed, things are a little crazy in the world these days, and if you've been feeling that, this helps you understand it. So with that, let's turn now to this chapter two, which is money. Okay, <clears throat> you have to understand money and how our money system actually works in order to have any chance of trying to decode what's going on in the world. Because your lives, my lives, we are all really 100% wrapped up around our economic models. If our money system fails on us, our society fails, all kinds of things fail. So what's going on? This is a topic that I know a lot of people don't get a lot of training in. It's not that hard. So the reason I have for explaining why our educational system here in the United States and many other Western countries fails so comprehensively to teach even the basics about how banking works, about how money creation works, the role of money in a society. These are all things that everybody should know. These are all things that were debated vigorously back in the time of our founding fathers here in the United States because they knew that a money system is the social contract. It is the glue. It is the thing that enables trust to be telegraphed and carried across long distances. I don't know you. I've never met you. And we can still conduct business together because of the glue of our money system. All right. So let's look at that now and go there because this is uh, a really big thing to be talking about money, 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 money. So here's why you need to understand this chapter. You absolutely must know that money, our money system is about to fail. And not for any reason besides, well, it's got a math problem. It's been mismanaged. It's done all kinds of things that have, you know, money systems are going to do, but you need to understand the fundamentals of how our money system is put together because every system just has some rules around it, right? System of gravity has rules. Learn the rules. You can figure out how to do space shots with, you know, using planetary slingshots. Uh, you figure out the rules of hockey. You can figure out how the game is played. Whatever the game is, there are rules. So in money, there are some rules. Every set of rules enforces some behaviors, punishes others. So I want to talk to you about our system of money and what it actually means. And it goes, um, goes like this. So in chapter one of the crash course, we talked about how economy, energy, environment all come together. And that in fact, when you put all three of these things into one spot, you come up with the idea that, wow, we're kind of on an unsustainable course. We're going to be digging through these in more detail now as we come into all the subsequent chapters here of the crash course, which I'm so pleased to be bringing to you again in renewed form. And it begins with the economy, because it's my belief that the economy is the way in which you and I are going to find out first that something is really wrong, that something is really breaking down. The economy, by which often is translated to stock prices, you know, the Federal Reserve is doing everything it can to manipulate the signal in this story and to try and prevent you from figuring out what's really happening out there. So I'm here to help decode this. Well, hopefully we can cut through the chafe of the noise. And most importantly, this will enable you. This and subsequent chapters, you will be able to figure out what's going on and how you want to position you, your family, your finances, your wealth, your skills, 
where you want to live in the world. All of these things are going to be explained and discussed in this series. So like I said, it's one of the most important things I've ever done in my life. I've made it available for free to everybody because I think everybody should have access to appropriate context and this level of information. All right. So if we know that when we put economy, energy, and environment together, and there's all kinds of little sub things around that, you know, there's credit cycles might be collapsing. There's exponential money growth, all this stuff. How do we begin to put it together? We have to start with money. Okay. And the summary of all that is, yes, we're on an unsustainable course. And obviously, you know, we talked in chapter one about these hockey stick charts and what they mean. And I just threw a couple of them in there, including that one on national debt. We're going to go into that in a little more detail today, but it begins here. Let's back way up. What is money? What do you mean money? I mean, you've grown up around it. You've been inculcated in it. You've you've strove, striven for it. You've, you've tried to get it. Your parents have taught you what they know about it. But at the end of the day, we all just kind of accept it. You're just sort of born into it. And they're like, there's this thing called gravity and there's babies grow inside of women. And there's this stuff called money. There's just these things that you just sort of have to accept. Even though when you sit down and think about any one of those three things, you're like, that's kind of interesting, you know, when you dig down through it. So money is something that is like water to a fish, say, needs examination if we want to really understand the world we're in. All right. So what is it? So we think about money as this stuff, right? There are these dollar bills here in the United States, but you could put in any currency, any face, any paper it's printed on, plastic, depending on which country you're from. But when we think about money, we're actually thinking about something that is more properly called currency. So money and currency are not necessarily the same thing. And so we're going to find out why today. And it begins with this understanding. Okay. Humans have always had some form of money. If you took all of our money or currency away today, humans would develop some other form of money. So in times past, cows have been a form of currency and money. Um, Tobacco. Tobacco was a legit form of currency here in the United States for a big, long chunk of its early history. Um, It could be bread. That's a form of currency in many places in the world or has been. It could have been uh, carefully carved nutshells. That's true. Nautilus shells or seashells, also forms of currency at various places in the world. And because we have these different types of money, what does money do for us? It allows us to have job specialization. Because if we were just back on barter, right, my bread for your eggs, it's very difficult to develop job specialization around that. So we see all these different types of job specializations that we have now are because of money. So money is this incredibly important social contract. It's an important social motive force. It's an organizing principle. It is the glue that allows us to do things across space and time with each other that allows the incredible job specialization to actually take off. As of last count, I forget, I looked at this a few years ago, there were like 300,000 separate job classifications. I would submit to you that if our money supply collapsed, we'd go back to about 50 or whatever the number is, right? You know, candlestick maker, farrier, you know, blacksmith, et cetera. Very few job specializations. But now you can be um, highly specialized, highly niche job. So that's because of our money system. Now, we get to this. What, What really is money? Come on, let's back it way up. All right, here is the textbook definition. Money. Money has three characteristics. The first is that it's a store of value. If you want your money to really be money. It has to be a store of value. So 
let's say we were doing uh, this back in old Virginia colony days and we had that tobacco as money. Well, it's okay because it'll store your wealth for a little while, but eventually the tobacco goes bad, it goes stale, it even rots away or it just dry powder rots away. So it's not a great store of value across long spaces in time. So that's why when other forms of money came along, they took over from lots of the endurable things like tobacco, right? So money needs to be a store of value. If it is, then whatever you're proposing to be money can be money. It has to be a medium of exchange, meaning it's accepted everywhere and it's accepted pretty evenly everywhere. So a medium of exchange is widely used. It would not help if I had a form of currency or money in my pocket and I went to the next town over and they didn't accept that form there, right? That would be not a medium of exchange. So it has to be a medium of exchange. And this is where government laws come in to help promote that whole idea that there's this ubiquity of money wherever it is, your money's good, right? And then finally, there has to be a unit of account. So a dollar is a dollar is a dollar is a dollar here in the United States. I go anywhere, dollar is a dollar. But if I had diamonds, diamonds are an incredible store of value. They can be very accepted by people, so they're a medium of exchange, but they're all different from each other. So it becomes difficult. Any, If you violate any one of these three things, you're introducing either a little or a lot of friction into your money system. So let's imagine we had the diamond-based economy here now, okay? So it's all diamonds. Well, that's great, except every time we want to conduct some piece of business, we have to drag out our diamond. Somebody has to drag out their jeweler's loop and try and figure out, and we have to haggle and barter over what you know, what are the four C's of this particular diamond, right? How big is it? How clear is it? All that stuff, right? And, and then um, that would create a lot of friction in that transaction. So diamonds would fail on unit of account and would do incredibly well on the other two. So it's really important that your money really has all three characteristics. And this is an important concept. Why? Because, well, gold and silver really performed these well, these roles really well. Obvious, incredible store of value, right? There's still, you know, you could lose gold in a ship in the highly corrosive ocean hundreds of years ago, and somebody could find it, and it's still just as good as the day it sank, right? So it's an incredible store of value. So both gold and silver, neither of them rust or oxidize. In any appreciable degree, they just are very stable. So they got that. Medium of exchange, highly recognizable, fairly easy to test for these and their purity and figure out what they are. And also in unit of account, they can be divided into very basic things by weight. Um, so gold and silver did well. Our currency by extension here in the United States is really good at three, really good at number two, and it's kind of failing at number one because it doesn't store the value. In fact, it is a specific program of intentional uh, devaluation. The Federal Reserve wants the money to fail at store of value. It's part of their, I know the remit in the Federal Reserve, they say it's, it's uh, maximum employment and stable prices. But what they mean is stably rising prices, because what they're actually after is a stated explicit target goal of 2% inflation per year, which means prices are going up 2% per year, which means the store of value of your money is going down by 2% per year. Meaning that if you had uh, a whole ship full of dollar bills that could sink in that corrosive ocean and somehow not get, you know, destroyed and you 
dug them up even just 35 years later at a 2% rate of inflation, they are now worth half as much. Whereas the gold that sank is worth 100% of what it was worth when it sank, you know, in term, in gold terms. So at any rate, that's what we're talking about here is that um, these, our money system, our currency system is not actually good money. And we all know this and we can feel it even more acutely now. And obviously there's a lot of issues going on with higher inflation here in 2023 to date this uh, presentation a little bit. And we know that there's going to be the potential for higher inflation going forward. So, but wait a minute, let's keep going. What, what, what is, what is money? Okay. Let me just move this over a tiny bit. What is this money stuff here? Okay. Well, that was funny looking, huh? Money is actually a claim on human labor. That's what it really is. Like if you ever wanted to get money, initial money, you kind of have to exchange your labor for it. We could look at it that way, right? So that's how most people get their money in this world. They exchange their time. They exchange their human labor for money. We call it a paycheck, call it a job. Doesn't matter, um, you know, where that is or, or how you go about that, but that's how most people get it. Now, that's interesting. Um, and the U.S. dollar is fiat money, and fiat means let it be done. Okay, so <clears throat> let it be done. Fiat, fiat, let it be done. This is a commandment in essence. And so it's basically let this money have value by command. The government commands it and the money actually has value. So what really then is a dollar? You know, once upon a time, it had a very precise definition in terms of a specified weight of silver and a specified weight of gold. So that's what a dollar was. Now, we look at this money then back in the day. So this is a silver certificate from 1935. And there's a couple things I want to point out. It still kind of looks like a dollar today. I mean, it might catch your eye. The blue seal, the, the oval around the ones is a little bit different, but there's George Washington's face. There's the $1, the filigree around everything looks a lot like a dollar today, but there's important notable differences because this dollar is a contract. And we notice up top, it says silver certificate. This is what all dollars were, because again, constitutionally, a dollar was specified as a, as a very given specific weight of silver of a known purity. So this dollar, once upon a time, was this. It said it certifies that there is on deposit in the U.S. Treasury, in silver, payable to the bearer, on demand. You could have taken your paper dollar bill back in 1935 and actually all the way up um, many decades after that, and you could have trotted down to a bank and you could have gotten and demanded, because it's a demand note, this is a contract, it's it's just a, it's a circulating warehouse script in essence, it was a demand note, you could go to a bank and demand a dollar's worth of silver, which again was X number of grams of silver of a known purity, all right? That was then, um, this is now. The dollar looks all sort of the same, but there's a couple of missing components on here. First up, it's just a Federal Reserve note. It's not a treasury obligation. This is now an obligation of an institution called the Federal Reserve. And what does this dollar entitle you to? You can take this dollar down to a bank and demand what? Another dollar. 
that looks a lot like this one. That's it. Um, these dollars are actually, it's a note, and it is legal tender for all debts, public and private, and that's it. That It gets its full value now by fiat. It is a full fiat currency. Let it be done. Let it be so. So the government has dictated that this has value because it is legal tender for all debts, public and private, and that's it. So now we have to understand that, that this dollar has its value because of the full faith and credit we place in this institution called the Federal Reserve. Now, in the next chapter, we're going to be talking about the Federal Reserve because it's really important that you understand what that institution is, what it isn't, what it's done, what it's not done. There's a lot of really important context there. Most people don't know it. A lot of people don't even want to know it, but it's literally one of the most important things you could learn about at this particular stage. If you at all care about your future, I highly advise you tune in for that chapter. So that's um, that's what money is today. Well, a huge difference, right? Let's go back. Once upon a time, it was a demand note, and it certified that on deposit in the U.S. Treasury was a given amount of silver that you could have demanded. And it says, too, as well on this one, this certificate is legal tender for all debts, public and private. So this is a certificate. It is a warehouse certificate. It certifies that there is a given amount of silver back at the U.S. Treasury that you could demand. If we had these things circulating right now, and I had a choice. Somebody said, hey, you could have one of these, and there's, you know, there's, a, there's a given amount of silver on demand. You could have that. Or you could have this one, right? <laughs> no contest. I'm taking the silver note. Why? Because I have lost the faith, such as it was, that the Federal Reserve is, is regulating our money supply in accordance with prudent practices or an eye for the future. So it's just how it is. Now, throughout history, there have been 3,800 at least paper currencies that have come and gone, mostly gone. And these are all, you know, they had incredible value at whatever time they were, you know, out there in the world, but they've all come and gone, all sorts of countries. So paper currencies come and go 3,800 times so far. Do I hear 3,801? Absolutely. So they come, they go. It's just part of it. Why do they come and go? Well, because they had utility for a period of time and then somebody mismanaged them into oblivion. That's how these things tend to go. So the question is, well, if this has happened 3,800 times historically, what is to prevent that from happening again currently or in the future? And the answer is nothing because <laughs> that's just the nature of the beast. We have a lot of people out there who think that our currency system is uh, going to, you know, just be here forever. And, you know, it's a divine right of some kind, but it, it's not. These things come and they go. And so understanding that history, having that context is really quite vital and important. So let's look at an example of a recent one. These are all from pretty far, long time ago. Here in Yugoslavia from 1988 to 1995, they had a really punishing rate of inflation. It was really in the 90s and it really sped up at the end. Remember in chapter one, we talked about exponential functions, how they really speed up at the end. Inflation is a process like that, that inflation starts out slow, but when it really gets going, it really speeds up at the end. Here's an example from history about this. So in 1988, a Yugoslavian dinar, it had value. You could buy something with it, right? Something, you know, maybe it took a couple of them, but it, it had actual measurable value. And then they ran out of hard currency reserves and they started printing up a lot of money because this is what 
people do in politics. They'd much rather print today than take some pain today. They'd rather push that pain to the future, but then the future is more painful than if you bit the bullet early. It's just human nature. So unless you think human nature is somehow really changed for the better since 1995, you were free to think that perhaps we might be subject to the same sorts of weaknesses, foibles, and disasters that have happened to humans thousands of times in their monetary history. Okay, So in 1988, dinar had value. But soon enough, it took 10,000 dinars, and then it took 100 million dinars. They created the note, and then just a little later, they had to create this 500 billion dinar note, and then they were chopping zeros off of these things, and the whole thing was a disaster. And finally, the currency system imploded. Massive wealth was destroyed for mostly the middle and poor class. Wealth was transferred during that period of time. Even though the currency system was imploding, who owned what in Yugoslavia? Now, that did change. Same as in the Weimar Germany experience. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But at the peak of it all, they were experiencing in Yugoslavia a 37% rate of inflation per day. Now, remember I talked about exponential functions and we said that an exponential function is defined by something growing by some percent over an amount of time, per unit of time. So in our stadium example, we had something that was growing by 100% every minute. And it turned out there was only 50 minutes before that entire stadium was filled. Maybe 51 minutes if I got the volume off by 100%, right? That's how the math works. So it looks like nothing is really happening for those first 45 minutes, but then, whoops, things get busy quick. And so that's what we're seeing here is at 37% rate of inflation per day. What does that really mean? So let me give you an example for that because I love examples. Um, so let's imagine, oh, I'll tell it this way. So uh, let's imagine that it's, uh, yeah, oh, I forgot this example. Yeah. Okay. I got this. So let's imagine that we have a penny on January 1st of 2007. Just pick that date because that's in the middle of, of this whole disaster thing that was unfolding in, in uh, Zimbabwe that we'll talk about in a minute. So let's imagine we, we could buy something with a penny on January 1st. I don't know what. Piece of penny candy, if such a thing existed. That's why I had to go back to 2007. Still had penny candy. So let's imagine it's January 1st, 2007. We can buy something with a penny. And then the question is, at that rate of inflation, how much money would we actually have to have in those currency terms, in our, in our U.S. dollar terms, if we were using a U.S. penny, how much would we have to have by April 23rd, April 3rd, 2007? And the answer is we'd have to have a billion dollars, right? What to buy that same thing? So at the 37% rate of inflation starting on January 1st, by April 3rd, we need a billion dollars to buy the same thing. What happened? Did that penny candy, is it suddenly worth a billion dollars? No, we have the story upside down, the value proposition upside down. The piece of candy is a piece of candy. It's a piece of candy on January 1st. It's a piece of candy on April 3rd. Nothing has changed about that. But the dollar amounts that you have to use to buy that went from a penny to a billion dollars. That's what 37% rate of inflation means. It's astonishing. We have so many examples of this through history. Could this happen to a major Western country? Could this happen to Japan? Could this happen to Europe? Could this happen to the United States? Could it happen to 
any other country. Yes, for the same reason that it's always happened. People decide it's a little easier, particularly politicians, it's a little, just a little, just a little easier to print today. And so they do. They print today. All right. So let's talk about another example of this. And this is getting to the core of why our money system is so important, why you should study it, why you need to understand it, why we all need to pay more attention to it, not just abdicate all that heavy lifting responsibility of printing all that money punch bowl goodness to some people who we don't question and treat as gods or demigods, when in fact, we really ought to be looking at them as with the high degree of skepticism and based on their recent actions, which we'll see in the Federal Reserve uh, chapter that comes next, they're really actually more like monetary vandals than stewards. So here we see in October of 2008, Zimbabwe's inflation rate surged to 231 million percent. So I have here some of my some of my favorite favorite examples here. So I, I collect these sorts of things. Um, so this here is a Zimbabwe twenty dollar bill. So they use they use the dollar system, but it's Zimbabwe dollar. It doesn't connote U.S. dollars. But this is uh, 1997. So this twenty dollar bill actually had quite a bit of value within their economy. You could buy a lot of things with it then, and even as late as 2007. They still had this one, a $1 was, was an actual, um, had some value. So this is 2007 and that's great. By 2008, however, all their inflationary cycle, they started printing like crazy. And I'm sure you've seen the pictures. I'll show you some of people with wheelbarrows of cash, literally by 2008, they started having to print these bad boys. That's a $500 million note, right? Uh, by a little bit later in 2008, not that much later, they were with their 231 million percent inflation. Look at this bad boy. It's a, a billion dollar note, right? Uh, how, about, how about this one here? <laughs> okay, now we're up to now we're up to uh, 10 tr- <laughs> that's 10 trillion dollars, right? Still 2008. 231 million percent inflation, 231 million. 10 trillion dollars, right? nothing. I'm a 50 trillionaire, right? And then of course the granddaddy of them all, and this is the height of absurdity in monetary printing is the hundred trillion dollar note. Also series 2008, right? So isn't that astonishing that we went from here in 2007, where a single dollar still had value to 2008. And we have a hundred trillion dollar note being printed. $1 $1 has value in 2007, and by 2008, we're at $100 trillion. That's how fast these things can get away from you. So that's the Zimbabwe story, and it's really uh, quite an exceptional story, and it's one we could all learn from, but it's no different than stories we see going on today, potentially. Well, for sure in Venezuela, uh, Argentina's experiencing punishing inflation right now, and on and on and on. So that's the story, and of course, if we go there, we see... This is what happens when your social contract, when your money system, when your glue breaks down. Obviously, you know, these people are carting around big, big piles of cash. And if you think like that one on the right over there, you can see those say 500 on them or 5,500. Yeah. When you need 10 trillion, 
of them, uh, 500, you need a lot of stacks of 500s to get to 10 trillion, right? So the money loses uh, value really, really fast, and then things start to break down. And so in the middle picture, you just see that's what a country whose currency system has broken down, that's what it looks like. When the Great Depression happened in the United States, that was the money system of the United States ceasing to operate. It wasn't that the United States lacked resources, people willing to work, uh, productive factories that could have been put back to use. None of that was broken. The money system broke. The glue broke. That's the Great Depression. We see the same breaking of the social contract, the money system here in Zimbabwe. Again, these are good people. They want to work. The, the country has resources, but they can't get it organized because their money system has failed them, which actually is a statement that says the monetary authorities have failed them because money systems don't fail anybody. The operators of those money systems fail people. And that's a distinction we need to draw. That's a conversation we need to have because we have some people driving these money systems at the ECB, in the banks, central banks of all the Western nations that are failing their people. And they're failing because they're not asking the most basic, most primary, most obvious questions, such as, can we ever pay all this debt back? And if not, then what? Simple question. They ought to ask that. Hey, can our money system grow infinitely forever on a finite planet? If not, what are the consequences? What are the implications? We should be asking and answering these questions, but they are completely forbidden at this point from public discourse. If I showed up as a journalist to ask any question that sounded even remotely like that from the Federal Reserve, I would never, ever, first they wouldn't answer the question, and then I would never, ever be invited back to ask another question at a press conference. Because these press conferences with the Federal Reserve, they're kabuki theater, you know? Simple questions, stupid answers that say nothing. And everybody's supposed to pretend as if this is reasonable, normal, and ordinary. And it's not. We should be asking questions because when you break your money system, lots of bad things happen. Is this an uncommon thing? No. Is it unthinkable? Maybe improbable for the United States anytime soon, but no longer unthinkable. So we have to talk about it, and we should, because the time to begin addressing these things is not as they're breaking. It's way before. It's before you get caught in that, that printing spiral, right? We're going to print more to pay the bills, which makes our bills go up, so we have to print more to cover the bills. So we print more to cover the bills, and you go, wee, right? Can't have that. If you want to know the future, you want to know about this, all this is contained in the crash course. If you are somebody, the book that I wrote, if you are a reader and you like that, um, getting your information that way, absolutely check this out uh, as well. It's in audiobook form if you're a listener, but I'm going into this series in more depth and more slowly as a video series, just in case this is how you like to consume it. So just trying to help, just trying to, I just need to get this information out there. Okay. So if that's money, then we have to talk about and reframe this idea of, okay, what's wealth? Because if I ask you a question like this is, if I ask you who's the wealthiest person in the world, you're going to point to some Forbes list and you'll say, oh, it's, you know, it's Jeff Bezos or it's Carlos Slim down in Mexico or it's, you know, um, whatever, right? Because those people have the most currency wealth, right? And that's how we score and measure this. But that's not actually wealth. And this is an important concept. And as soon as we share this framing, we can begin to really build on this and then talk about what I mean when I talk about this whole thing being unsustainable. Again, you don't have to agree with me. All I'm asking is that you digest, at least listen to this information. If you reject it, let me know why. Tell me where I've got this wrong. Wide open to having that conversation. So what is wealth then? 
Well, money is not wealth. And I don't care whose picture you put on it. I don't care, you know, which country it's from. They all operate under a single regime where all money is printed into existence within the system. And we'll get to that in just a minute in the banking system, what that means. But first, what is wealth? So it's not the currency itself, right? Real wealth is primary wealth. That's where it starts. 200 years ago in this town or your town, if you ask the question, who's the wealthiest person 200 years ago? The answer would have come back. Somebody would have pointed to the person who owns or controls the most real estate usually. And secondarily, it would be somebody who controlled or owned the most gold or silver, precious metals, right? Because those were real forms of wealth. So, so it begins here. Primary wealth is the true source of all wealth. This is work that comes out of the Small is Beautiful E.F. Schumacher Foundation. They do the great job describing primary, secondary, and then tertiary wealth. So primary wealth, rich soils, fresh, clean water, abundant fisheries, oil in the ground, thick coal seams, ore bodies, that's primary wealth. So a nation that's rich in primary wealth has the capability of being rich in lots of other ways. But if you don't have this primary wealth, if you have a nation that has none of this, you don't have any arable land, you have no resources of, that are worth anything, you have no food, no fisheries, no timber, nothing, you just have a little rocky island, you, you cannot have a wealthy island, you know, unless you import that wealth from somewhere else. So this is the wealth of a nation. It begins with their resources. Okay. Now, secondary wealth is what happens when humans take that primary wealth and bring it to market. So that ore body becomes steel at the, at the factory or out at the marketplace. The fish get to plate. All the food is grown and brought to market. Trees are turned into lumber. Secondary wealth is the means of production and or the stored, already produced primary wealth. So you could have a giant stockpile of copper. You got a lot of secondary wealth on your hands. You could have a giant stockpile of, of uh, lumber in a yard. You have a giant pile of secondary wealth. You could own the means of production. You could have a lot of oil wells under your name and you have a lot of secondary wealth that's depleting because you're pumping oil out of the ground and the wells eventually run dry. But that's an important distinction. Primary wealth, secondary wealth. It's the raw resources and then the means of production and or the output from those means of production. That's secondary wealth. Okay. Now that leads to this wealth rule, which is that, look, without primary wealth, there can't be any secondary wealth. Hey, I want to be really rich in lumber, but I live in a place with no trees. Very hard to do that. Hey, I'm going to bring all these fish to market, but there are no fish in the ocean doesn't work out. Hey, we're going to grow all this food, but we have no soil left that works and we have no fertilizer and we have no way of doing that. Then it, you can't do that, right? So primary wealth begets secondary wealth. You can't have a whole lot of secondary wealth without the primary wealth. In fact, you have to have a lot more primary wealth to make that secondary wealth, right? So, because not every every tree gets turned completely into lumber. Not all the ore can be processed. Not all the oil comes out of the ground. So that's why we do this as this wealth pyramid here. You see that wealth pyramid on the side down there. See that? The primary wealth is that big fat bottom of the, of the pyramid right there. And then we move up to secondary wealth and it's a little skinnier thing. And then of course we get to um, tertiary wealth. Tertiary wealth is what most people think of when we say wealth, right? They think, oh, it's uh, stocks, 
It's bonds, it's currency, it's these things called derivatives, which are a derivative. I've put one example up here with derivatives, just a contract. It's a legal, it's a legal contract, but it's like a credit default swap is, is, is a derivative built on top of an underlying bond. And the bond itself is a tertiary form of wealth that represents a claim on something, either a stream of money or a factory or something like that, or a house. Um, and then, well, that tertiary wealth derives its value because that secondary wealth and the primary wealth are there. So this leads to this larger transitive rule, which looks like this wealth rule. Number two is that without secondary wealth and primary wealth, there can be no tertiary wealth. It has no meaning. Put you again on that desert, rocky Island with no resources, but I'll give you a billion dollars of us cash on a pallet. And you're actually going to find more value in the wood and the pallet than you will in the currency itself, right? Possibly because you could at least make a lean to out of, out of the pallet, right? Maybe burn the currency for warmth if you could get, find a way to ignite it. Um, but this is important because your whole life, my whole life, we've been marketed to is if wealth is this stuff called money, called currency, called a, a paper-based claim on that, right? Stocks, bonds, derivatives, things like that. That's what we're told. We've been told our whole lives that real true wealth is something that's actually not wealth at all, but a claim on wealth. So what is a dollar? It's a claim on future wealth. Okay. So that's why when we look at this, we have this wealth pyramid. We got primary in the bottom, then secondary, then tertiary. But the way it's presented to us is if it's flipped, that in fact, the most value in the world is contained in this big world of paper stuff, which we call tertiary wealth, stocks and bonds and all of that. So um, this is important because we're coming to a period of time over the next decade or so, certainly by 2030, when people are going to be remembering this and bringing it back again and understanding it. And this drives a lot of how I think about where I want to live, what I want to invest my time in, what I think might be a legitimate investment going forward. We have to untangle ourselves from thinking about wealth in the way it's been marketed and presented to us. And we have to think for ourselves and decide for ourselves what real value is. And that's something I do all the time with Peak Prosperity subscribers. We, we wrestle through this kind of thinking all the time to come to the conclusion so we can get to actions around the idea of what is going to be real wealth next year, the year after, and the year after that. Okay. So money, I said, is a claim on human labor. It's a social contract, but money is actually really just a claim on wealth, primary and secondary. Money itself is just this thing. It's a claim. It's uh, used to direct human labor and activity. But really, what is money when, even if you swapped your labor for a pile of money, what does that mean? So you've, you've taken your labor, you've spent a week, 40 hours, you get a paycheck. What do you do with that paycheck? Well, you probably buy food with it, right? Secondary wealth. You probably buy energy with that. So your house can be electrified and cool or, or heated, depending on the season. You might buy a car, right? You, you might buy clothes. You might take a trip. There's not a single thing I can think of that you can do with that money when you're expending it where it doesn't represent just a claim on some form of primary or secondary wealth, right? I could buy raw land with it. Whatever I'm doing, though, I am actually using my money as a means of exchanging my labor to have some money that I can then save and store up for a little while, 
hopefully is a store of value that doesn't lose its value too quickly so that I can swap that. So I can swap that for one of these primary or secondary forms of wealth. So money is a claim on wealth. That's what it is. Money is a claim on wealth. And we can store that so it could be a claim on future wealth or it could be a claim on wealth today, but it's just, it's a side, it's stored, it's a stored claim, right? Okay. Well, then what's debt? What is, what is debt then? Well, you ever think that through? What is debt? Well, that makes debt, debt's a claim on future money. Do you ever think about it that way? And this is how I think about it. So like a, a debt, say um, a mortgage. Let's say it's a 30-year mortgage. That means for 360 months, every month, you're going to have to come up with money to pay that mortgage off or you'll be in default and you'll lose the primary residence, even if it's the very last month in that series. Interesting game, right? So money is a claim on wealth, but debt's a claim on future money. So isn't debt really a claim on future wealth? Follow that logic through, right? So let's solidify this a little bit, make sure we're clear on this. Is debt really a claim on future money? Well, a debt is a contract and it says it has a principal component and it has an interest component, unless it's a 0% loan, and those are very, very rare, but almost entirely all debt represents a claim on your future money at a stated rate of interest. So you have to pay the principal back, you have to pay the interest back at some point in the future, next week, next month, a year from now, over the next 30 years, that's the nature of debt. So money is a claim on wealth. Debt is a claim on that future money. And, well, that means that really debt is a claim on future wealth, real wealth, right? Primary, secondary wealth. So now we're getting to a really interesting, very vital question which is, well, if we're piling up all these claims, all these debts, if debt's accumulating within our system, shouldn't we have, isn't that really saying that debts are, that claims on future wealth is, are accumulating? Yes, absolutely. That what it's what it means. So let's get back to that hockey stick chart right here. Wow. That's a lot of future claims. Look at, look at the, this is us national debt, you know, exploding up to 31.4 trillion here in 2023. And of course that'll only go higher. And, but there is a very important, powerful message embedded in this that very few people seem to want to talk about, but it's blindingly obvious once you look at it this way, which is that we are, that's an exponential chart right there. It's increasing exponentially. We are making exponentially more and more and more claims on the future. Claims on what on the future? Claims on future wealth. What future wealth? I don't know. The future uh, food that's out there in the future, uh, future housing, future cars, future oil, gas, future coal, future fish, whatever it is, there are increasing an exponentially increasing number of claims on the future. All right, well... What does that mean? Hmm. Shouldn't there be some sort of relationship between, I don't know, real things and the claims on them? Shouldn't there be if the Federal Reserve as uh, monetary stewards and the Congress and Republicans and Democrats and Senate and all that in the U.S., shouldn't they be the fiscal stewards? Shouldn't there be some alignment? 
you would be thinking, logically, with common sense, some alignment between the claims and the stuff. Doesn't that just make sense, right? The claims and the stuff, you know? If, if, I, was, if I was in the business of selling stuff off of my farm and I, had, I handed out a million chits, pieces of paper that, that said people could come by for a free dozen of eggs and they handed out a million of those, but I only have a dozen eggs, wouldn't you think that you know, handing out more of those would not be a good idea because there's no possible chance in the future that my dozen chickens are going to make more than a dozen eggs, right? It, it, like eventually there just has to be a relationship, of course, of course, between the claims and the stuff. So in this story, the stuff happens to be gross domestic product for the United States or any country. That's one way of measuring the total amount of stuff, your gross domestic product. So if gross domestic product is climbing along at one rate, you would think logically that's the rate at which you might see future stuff showing up that you, you would have these claims against, right? Because GDP is the stuff you buy with your money, right? And if we have future claims rising at a faster pace than future stuff is rising at, well, there's a huge gap. How would that gap get closed? It's very obviously not going to be a sustainable thing. So we have to talk about this. But uh-oh, let's take a look at this. This doesn't require a fancy PhD degree in economics. You don't have to be a Federal Reserve lifer staffer to understand that we have a problem here. So on the bottom, in the dotted line, is gross domestic product. And on the top, according to the Federal Reserve data, is all sector debt. This is all kinds of debt, right? Household debt, state debt, municipal debt, credit card debt, student debt, auto loans. It's all in there. Not unfunded liabilities, just debt, right? The, that's the top line is that debt. So look at this. That's the rate, that blue line, the, the slope of that blue line. That is the rate at which, you know, uh, the stuff is accumulating in the story. That's how fast the growth in the economy is undergoing. But I think it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that the debt up top, that's growing at a very, very different pace. Um, and in fact, if we compare the rates, even like here's how fast it was growing on that orange arrow for, I don't know, the past 10 years or so, but the past five years is clearly growing even faster than that. That's the yellow line. So when you just compare those colored arrows and their slopes visually, eh, nothing fancy here. Just look at it and you go, wow, debts are accumulating at a faster pace than the stuff underneath it. That's all. Is that sustainable? No, it's absolutely not. As the economist Herb Stein said, anything that, that is unsustainable will someday stop. So eventually this system breaks. That's what we're hurtling towards. You can feel it. Everybody knows it. Nobody wants to talk about it. For some reason, that job falls to people like me, you know, but here we are and we have to talk about this. We are increasing our claims on the future in an increasingly faster rate than the actual future is growing, which is the economy. And by the way, if you follow the whole crash course, we'll discover that that growth in the economy itself is almost 100% dependent on surplus energy. And there's a whole story there about energy and what it can be and what it can't be. And we have to talk about all that. But for now, just we can say purely on a math function basis, we are increasing our claims on the future at an exponential rate. That's an exponential curve there on the debt growth. And we are increasing it at a rate that's growing faster and faster 
and pulling away severely from the underlying economy itself. It's really not that, there's not, this is it. I mean, if somebody said, can you explain why the United States has a looming debt predicament? It's this chart. It's not even just debt at the federal level. It's the whole country is going increasingly into debt because that that debt level on top is all sectors, right? Again, corporate, household, and uh, government, right? So it's it's all the sectors. And together, the whole nation has just been borrowing more and more and more and more. And that's what we do. We do that. And it hasn't been a problem so far. And it hasn't broken. So, you know, STFU, Chris, you know, no big deal, right? This can carry on forever. But it can't. Logically, obviously, cannot continue on forever. And so this becomes a legacy question. What kind of a country are leaving behind? What kind of a fiscal status are we leaving behind? And by the way, if you break your money system, if you break your money system, you break the social contract, right? And what happens is your country breaks down. You lose social order, crime increases, demoralization occurs, depression happens, people can't find stuff. It just becomes impossible to get things organized. Somehow whole complicated systems of the economy break down. It is that serious. And practically nobody is talking about it when the evidence for why what I'm saying is true is staring us right in the face. Couldn't be any clearer than this. Somebody ought to sit down at one of these vaunted press conferences and go, Jerome Powell or whoever's currently chairman of the Federal Reserve, and or to our fiscal leaders in D.C. What's the plan? You see this? This doesn't look sustainable. What's the plan? And the plan, usually, they say is, ah, oh, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we'll grow out of that if they even address it. Recently, Jerome Powell was asked about this, uh, and he said the problem is that we're on a path where the debt is growing substantially faster than the economy, and that, by definition, in the long run, is unsustainable. And that is, by definition, in the long run, unsustainable. So it's not like it's not being talked about. It's just that statement came and went and Cynthia Loomis asked another question. And nobody asked any follow-up questions. It should have been like one of these moments. Whoa, 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 Jerome. If it's in the long run unsustainable, tell us about that long run. What happens if we just ignore this and the long run catches up with us and suddenly this whole thing, you know, the bills come due? What happens then? I'll tell you what happens then. It's called hyperinflation, destruction of the currency system involved. Ludwig von Mises, the Austrian economist, put this beautifully. And he said, there is no other means, paraphrasing badly here, of avoiding a catastrophe after expansion of credit. Okay. And by the way, this is expansion of credit, that, that top line. Your only choices when you have a, a, grow, a runaway credit situation, according to Ludwig von Mises, is one, you voluntarily abandon that credit cycle. Or two, you face a catastrophe of the currency system involved. That's it. So someday we're going to have that catastrophe of the currency system involved because nobody has the stomach to deal with this thing. Just how it is. Nobody really wants to deal with this issue. So if because you know what? It's it's fun when you borrow more than you actually can and you just keep the credit growth going. And that's fun. A lot of fun. We borrow, we go on vacations, we borrow and we, we pour them into unproductive businesses. We borrow and we, you know, keep sustaining unsustainable government expenditures, you know, and hand out all the goodies to our electorate and all that. It's fun. Nobody has a stomach for voluntarily abandoning a credit expansion. Because that's just 
that's no fun. That's just no fun. A stick in the mud time. <laughs> no fun at parties, you. You know, come on. You know, so at any rate, uh, this is a warning that eventually we're going to have that catastrophe of the currency system involved. And that's why if you've started to hear all this rumblings about a central bank digital currency, a CBDC, what is that really about? Well, obviously it's about control and power, but it may also have to do with the fact that eventually we know that there is a great reset coming. Like it or not, on our terms or some other terms, this is going to reset. You know why? Because anybody can look at this of average intelligence and go, well, that's unsustainable and it will someday break. And if it someday breaks, what would that breakage look like? Well, that's either on our terms or it's on some other terms. And if that happens, then a lot of pain and misery results. Nobody really wants that, least of all the team elite, and they don't want that to happen in an uncontrolled way that causes people to rightly begin to figure out rat in a cage style that it's actually those folks up there with the white lab coats applying the shocks who mismanaged this whole thing. And if you don't know what I mean by the rat in a cage analogy, check out some of my earlier work on rats in a cage. Again, important framing concepts that help us understand and make sense of and distill down a very complicated environment so we can get it into our brains and work with it a little bit. But that's what Team Elite doesn't want in the story. They absolutely do not want us figuring out that they are the ones who bungled and mismanaged this whole thing because they didn't know how to, they didn't know how to say no. They didn't want to take the punch bowl away. They didn't know how to be the party poopers. They, that was too difficult, right? That's not what they wanted. And by the way, you know, we look at this money system piece here. Oop, wrong one. I got to get the right. Yeah. Now I get my drawing tool out. <clears throat> you see this right here? This little piece. In 2008, where the credit actually, for the first time in the entire series, went ever so slightly backwards down like that. See how it went just slightly down like that? You see that little piece? That almost destroyed the entire system of money we have. So again, where I said every money system enforces some behaviors, punishes others, the behavior system of ours is that it needs exponential, perpetual expansion of credit. And if it doesn't get that, it gets very unhappy. It begins to threaten to collapse. That's what happened in 2008. We had that little tiny wiggle divot right there, right? And that almost destroyed the whole system. That little piece right there almost took the entire financial system of the West to the ground. So whoops, learning. And not only did they keep growing and do everything they could to get credit growing again, they really put it on, excuse me, on steroids. So that's why Jerome Powell said this. It ought to be obvious. It should be more of a point of conversation. It really isn't because people don't understand money. They don't understand the power of it, the importance of it. We, we've lost our history around this. I think Cynthia Loomis was asking good questions, but I didn't get the sense that she's grounded or anybody else who was asking questions in this hearing were really grounded in the enormity of the statement of what Jerome Powell said in response. When your money system breaks, your entire culture breaks. It's our contract. It's our glue. Okay, so this is not sustainable too because here we have, um, you know, the claims, which is the debt, the, the GDP, which is the stuff, right? Just to make it in simpler terms here. So again, same chart, just want to drive this home. This is this important. The claims on top, exploding away exponentially. The stuff on the bottom, climbing at a much, much lower rate of growth. Just full stop, not sustainable. All right. So now to really get to the core of this, we're going to talk about banking and we have to get through this. And this is the last part of this section. And then we will turn 
uh, in future chapters to the Federal Reserve and inflation. But first, we got to understand banking itself. So John Kenneth Galbraith, he's a Harvard economist. He served under multiple presidents, won two medals of freedom, was uh, an ambassador, just a really just a, a just a larger than life figure. Very intelligent gentleman. <clears throat> he said, quote, the process by which banking creates money is so simple that the mind is repelled, end quote. What do you mean by that? So simple that the mind is repelled. What do you mean the process by which banks create money? Do, do go on. What are you referring to, Chris? Uh, it's a really fascinating thing. And again, I've, I've, given, I've given talks in public where there probably must be 10,000 audience members under my belt where I've asked the question, hey, hands up, how many people here were taught how money creation works within the U.S. banking system or any banking system of the West in their schooling, whether it was primary, secondary, college, graduate, I didn't care. Tell me if you were taught about how money is created in the system. And, and the entire time I've had two hands go up. One person went to a college where they had a Marxist professor who understood this stuff. And another was a place where they had a very avant-garde economics professor. Um, but at any rate, uh, most people don't get taught this. And again, not because it's impossible to understand or difficult even, just because it's really important that you understand this. And this is not being taught in colleges. It's not being taught in high schools. And it should be because, again, there is nothing more important than this thing that controls your life, shapes the destiny of who you can be and what you can't be, that if you run out of it, you end up living under a bridge and becoming destitute, maybe committing suicide. Is that much power in our lives? Well, then maybe we understand where it comes from, who's in charge of it, and what the rules around that are. We should learn them, obviously. So... Here's how money is created in the system. Let's imagine that we're in, we've just gone to a whole new dimension. There's no money anywhere in the system, but we have the structure of a banking system at the ready. And so I wander into the story with $1,000 in my pocket. And so I am the first $1,000 to ever come into the system. You're there. Everybody's there. We're all just waiting for some money so we can get that social glue and lubricant going so we can get our economy roaring along. Needs money. I show up. 1000 bucks. What do I do with my thousand bucks? Well, uh, here we're going to discuss fractional reserve banking. So what I'm going to do with that is I'm going to put my thousand bucks in a bank. Sounds good, right? Now I have a bank account for thousand dollars and the bank has an offsetting liability, which is my thousand dollars. My asset is their liability. That's how it works. Now, what could the bank do? Now, according to the rules, the banks can loan out up to 90% of that. They only have to hold a fraction in reserve, 10%. They have to hold 10% in reserve, although we're about to see that's not actually true anymore, but this is how it has been taught conventionally. So this helps us get our minds around it. So let's pretend for the moment in this fictional universe, the fraction that has to be held in reserve is 10%. And the theory underlying that is that, hey, you know what? Everybody doesn't show up for their bank money all at once, you know? So how much do we actually have to hold in reserve in case a lot of people show up all at once? like happened in 2023 with Silicon Valley Bank, right? Oops, too many people showed up for their money all at once and the fractional reserve banking system broke down for that regional bank. This is It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart, that you know 1940s black and white film, wonderful, wonderful film. Again, there's that famous moment he owns a bank where all too many people show up wanting their money back all at once and they don't have it because they kept just a fraction in reserve. All right. 
So I take my thousand dollars, put it in. The bank has it as a liability. It's my asset and they can loan out 90% of that. They loan out 90% of that to this gentleman, um, who needs to put a roof, uh, repair project on his house. Uh, now he takes that $900 and hands it to the roof repair who, or I guess an accountant, let's say he needed some accounting. That looks more like an accountant. So, uh, takes the $900, gets his taxes prepared, hands it to the accountant. Now, what does the accountant do with this? That 900 bucks. Well, he puts it in the bank, the same bank, could be the same bank. The bank now has another $900 it can loan out against because it only has to keep 10% of that 900 in reserve. So it can loan out 810, maybe to the same guy and so on and so on and so on and so on. And when you you find out that under a 10% fractional reserve system, $1,000 can be turned into $10,000 of loans within the banking system, which is $10,000 of money because that $900 given to that accountant, to that accountant, that 900 bucks is real. That's 900 bucks. I got 900 bucks, my asset. So it turns out that initial $1,000 gets turned into $10,000 of assets and liabilities in the banking system. But where did that 10,000 come from? Where did that extra $9,000 come from? It was loaned into existence because when did that money actually come into existence. It was when it was loaned to that next person. If you follow this along, you discover that there isn't enough of that original thousand dollars to create that $10,000. Where did the rest come from? It was loaned into existence. Now, what do you know about loans? Well, loans have a principal component and an interest component. So you have to pay both of those back, but the interest is what? Well, it's some percentage over a unit of time. Uh Uh-oh. What happens when something grows by some percentage over a unit of time? That's right. It's exponential. So that's a concept. I'm going to connect that dot a little later. It's, you can feel how these threads are starting to come together in this story, I hope. And so we have to talk about this part of interest. Now, I gave this talk, um, exact talk once back in, oh, I was like, I forget, 2007 or something, six. It was back there. And I had a guy stand up and he was all angry at me because he was an econ professor at UConn. And he said, everything I was teaching about money creation was absolutely wrong. And unfortunately for him, I had an indisputable source for all of this information. This right here came from a rock solid, indisputable source, which is that I ordered these comic books from the Federal Reserve. And this is about the story of banks and they tell how banks work. So it's actually in comic book form at the Federal Reserve. And you can discover that. Um, And so the key concept is this, all money is loaned into existence. That's a really powerful statement. If you could just sit down on a really nice little rug and get into the lotus position and meditate on this statement until it's settled all the way in, you would then have the secret to the future unlocked for you because this is a powerful statement right here. And let me unpack that for you a little bit. By the way, I just found this out the other day. Kind of fun here. Uh, It turns out there, as I mentioned, there are actually zero... Uh, reserve requirements now within the banking system. <laughs> it's like, uh, look, look, at this, look at this right here. Uh, let me see. Let me see. I'm going to get, uh, let me get my, my highlighter here. Yeah, look at this. Look at this. As announced on March 15, 2020, the board from the Federal Reserve reduced reserve requirement ratios to zero. <laughs> Effective March 26, 2020. This action eliminated reserve requirements for all depository institutions. So now they don't have to hold anything in reserve. So we could go back up to this example, right? 
And now if somebody wanted to, there's a thousand dollars in the bank and somebody wanted to borrow $20 million. Okay. As long as the bank feels like that's a good loan to make, they can make that loan. There's no longer any reserve requirements. And now we begin to understand why banks became a little bit riskier, a little bit more thinly capitalized. We understand why we had the bank failures, regional bank failures starting to show up in 2023. It's because of this. This is this is it. This is the headwaters of the policy Nile. This is where the disaster began. This is the this is the where the swampy water began to flow downhill. This is astonishing, right? Why did they do that? So I chased this down a little more. The Federal Reserve did this because they wanted to have actions, they say here, that were going to support the flow of credit to households and businesses. Credit. Credit is debt. That's what they mean. Look at this. That's what they did. The Federal Reserve is carefully monitoring credit markets, prepared to use its full range of tools to support the flow of credit to households and businesses and thereby promote its maximum employment and price stability goals. The flow of credit. Now, what was the emergency that the Fed really needed to support the flow of credit? Well, remember I showed you in 2008 where the little dip in credit almost broke the system. So the Fed's like, oh, we can't have dips in credit. That was, oh, that's a disaster. That would be terrible. But look at this. So this is quarterly change in household debt, you know, and guess what? Every one of those green bars means that debt is growing at household level. Every time there's a red bar, it dipped slightly. Look at this. In 2020, when they made that, um, March of 2020, they did that because in the second, um, in 2020, in the second quarter right here, just for a tiny second, there was a tiny dip in credit growth in households and the Fed panicked. That was all it took. One single quarter of negative credit growth in households and the Fed panicked and removed all reserve requirements from banks so they could lend freely and lend freely. They did look at this. Woo! right? That's what it looks like. So this is an astonishing thing. When I say I consider the Federal Reserve to be monetary vandals, it's true, but they're also social vandals because when you are constantly doing everything you can to create more and more and more debt in the system without having a single thought about, is there a limit to that? Is this a good idea? Is there anything in the future that might say that all those claims on future stuff, maybe we better be clear that there's a future large enough to support all this new debt creation. They don't think about that. All they think about is this quarter today, what do we need to do to make sure that we're putting more credit, more debt into the system because we have a debt-based money system. That's the whole scheme. That's the whole game. All right. So let's look at this then, a feature of loaning money into existence. Remember I said that as an interest in a principal component, right? That interest component. So if you take out a mortgage loan here, right, for instance... Yep. Take out your mortgage loan. It has obviously those two parts, the loan principal plus expenses plus interest, right? So if we said somebody borrowed $100,000, right? Over time, expenses, taxes, and fees, all that's going to be about $15,000 on that. And over time, at a 2.5% loan rate for 15 years, there would be about $20,000 of interest expense for a total of 135,000 payback. So you borrowed 100, but you had to pay back 135. But all the way down here, if you were at a 10% rate of interest on a 30-year loan, you might've borrowed that 100,000, but over time ended up paying back $331,000. So that first $100,000 was printed into existence out of thin air by a bank 
clickety-clacketing on a ta- on a keyboard and handing you that $100,000, which you then bought the house with. And then over time, you're going to pay back on that bottom bar $331,000 to that same bank and also into the system for expenses and things like that. Okay. That's interesting, but where 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 did where's but if only 100,000 was loaned into existence for this purchase, where did that other 231,000 come from on the bottom? Where, where, where did that money come? Nobody loans that money into existence. Where, so if you're the initial borrower of the 100,000, you got to go out and work. Where's that other 216,000 of interest come from? Where's it come from? Well, a conclusion of this is that in a debt-based money system where you're only loaning out the principal value, but the interest has to come from somewhere, there will always, always, always be more debt in the system than money. That's a conclusion. I could take you through the math, but it's how it works out. So, but that ought to be provable, right? We've been running this system long enough. It ought to be completely obvious that we could look at some data and find out if there is more debt than money in the system. Is that true? Actually, it is. So here we're looking at two pieces of data from the Federal Reserve System. Again, our favorite up top, all sector debt, right? The bottom is M2, which is a broad definition of money. Money might be cash in your wallet. It could be money in your checking account. M2 also includes certificates of deposit that you might have at a bank. It might include money market funds. So M2 is is just money in the system. Uh, I think you can clearly see there's a lot more debt than money in the system. Just how it is. And by the way, the money's increasing at one rate, but the debt's increasing at another rate. So the debt is accumulating faster than the money. Why is that? It's because a lot of this debt is getting what's called rolled over. It gets compounded on top of itself. And debt includes a principal and an interest component. And the interest is expressed as a percent over a unit of time. You have a loan out and it's going to have some amount of yearly rate of interest on it, or maybe a monthly rate of interest on the, depending on the type of loan. But it is, has interest over some percent of time, which means, that's right, it's an exponential system by definition. So given this, you know, that debt is a claim on future money, the implicit assumption of seeing constantly growing debt levels is that the economy, future economy, is just going to be exponentially larger than the present economy. That. There, there it is. That's it. That's an implicit assumption. Is that a good assumption to make though? Hmm. No, it's really not because you have to assume that the future world and the future world economy is going to be exponentially larger than today. And we're going to take that apart in future episodes. And we're going to show you where that growth, where that future economy, where the future resources really come from. And oh boy, is there a story there that's kind of hair raising in its implications. But Debt-based money systems, hey, I think they're a fantastic idea in a world without any resource limits. Um, They're a great idea back in 1913, potentially, when, you know, there were still places on the planet that hadn't been explored. A debt-based money system today, in today's world, where we have eight plus billion people, where we pretty much mapped out all the major resource finds, and we know exactly how much of those things are there, and that primary and secondary wealth is actually the true wealth against which we're actually using our money system is just a, a marker, right? The idea that we are not thinking this through and constantly growing our debt-based money system faster and faster and faster and faster without a single apparent thought about the idea that, but that debt-based money system, it's not the reality. 
It's just a claim. It's just a marker on real wealth. What's real wealth? We've been through this. It's primary wealth. It's secondary wealth. It's real things. Oh, how many of those real things are there? And are, is there a possibility that we could grow those exponentially to meet this ever exponential rising amount of claims, which is the debt in the system? Do these things connect at all? And the answer is no, they don't, not even remotely, not even a tiny bit, right? So this is all something that we need to talk about. And that's why we're talking about it because they're not really talking about it, even though Jerome Powell let slip what everybody should be talking about because it's just blindingly obvious that the current run rate of debt accumulation in the United States, but also for the world, is completely unsustainable. And that has enormous implications for how the future is going to unfold, what's going to be valuable, what's not going to be valuable, and where we all should be applying our efforts and our attention going forward. So up next, chapter three, thank you so much for making it this far. Chapter three is going to be about the Fed money printing and inflation because we're going to go to the headwaters of the Nile. Where does that first thousand dollars come from? And also inflation. How do we think about it? How do we understand it? It's a really important chapter. And with that, you're going to have this foundation, this foundation that we're sharing together. And thank you so much for making it this far. Congratulations for getting all the way through this long, involved, but hopefully important gripping chapter um, because this is really important stuff folks and once we get the foundation we can have a shared conversation about the implications of this stuff again this is just common sense it's staring us all in the face for some reason the culture doesn't seem to want to have this discussion most people seem to want to turn away from it you're not one of those people because you know that information that you can use and context you can use is actually the most important and powerful device you can accumulate for yourself. But again, information without action doesn't do much, right? So we are going to be talking about all of this, every one of these chapters here now at um, that I'm talking about with you here today will also have a corresponding chapter that sits over at Peak Prosperity. And this I will take the conclusions from this and draw it into current events. And so whatever time you're watching this, it will be at some point in the future, potentially, uh, if you're watching this far in the future, we will be having corresponding conversations around the implications off of this chapter. This is what we're going to be talking about most recently, and we'll carry on with all of that. So thank you very much for listening today. Please, I hope you make use of this information, and uh, I've been very happy to be putting this information back together for you here out in the world. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye.